Good afternoon. You're listening to KFSK News for Thursday, October 26th. I'm Hannah Floor. Petersburg's hospital board plans to discuss its child care programming at its monthly meeting this evening. The pilot program is wrapping up its first year, and the board will hear a status report on the project before they decide whether it'll continue. And as KFSK's Shelby Herbert reports, a new board member will be helping to make that decision. Following the municipal election in September, Micah Hasbrook will begin her first term on the hospital board. Board President Jared Cook and Board Secretary Marlene Cushing were re-elected to their seats, and a major decision lies ahead of them, whether PMC will continue its pilot child care programming. Last year, PMC partnered with Kinderskog, a local nature-based child care provider, to host after-school youth programming. Kinderskog left the umbrella of the Petersburg Lutheran Church and is currently housed by PMC's Community Wellness Department. The idea for the partnership arose from the results of the child care needs assessment funded by the Petersburg Community Foundation. That survey underscored the lack of child care options for working parents in the community, and as the program wraps up its first year, it's scheduled to go under review by the board. At their meeting last month, the board heard several impassioned testimonies from the public about the importance and efficacy of the pilot programming. Katie Homeland, who's in charge of the Medical Center's youth programs, thanked the board for their support of Kinderskog. She said that the program has grown substantially and that many healthcare providers across the state are now trying to emulate its success. Tonight, PMC Youth Programming staff will report on the status of the pilot program and make their case for its future. The board will also hear several reports from hospital staff, including one from its chief of staff, Dr. Alice Hulebach. PMC is trying to expand specialty care and will welcome several new medical specialists this month. They're bringing in a general surgeon to perform colonoscopies and endoscopies, as well as a dermatologist to provide consultations at regular intervals. They also signed a contract with a psychiatrist who will soon be able to provide mental health consultations. Dr. Jennifer Heyer, PMC's former family physician, left her role in August to sail across the ocean with her family. Now, the hospital is actively recruiting to fill her position. PMC is also trying to expand services by training up the staff it already has. Dr. Hulebach got licensed as an aviation medical examiner for the Federal Aviation Administration, which means pilots will be able to schedule appointments locally for certain regulatory medical exams. And Dr. Selena Burt is now a certified medical review officer for workplace drug testing. Chief Nursing Officer Jennifer Briner will report on the hospital's efforts to control and prevent infection in the community. It's flu season, and flu shots are available at the clinic and hospital, as well as in the public and home health offices. The clinic is also awaiting delivery of the new RSV vaccine. In other business, the board will accept a $20 million grant that will fund its Workforce Education Resource Center. The center will be part of PMC's new facility, which will replace the existing hospital. Then the board will enter into an executive session, which is closed to the public, to consider medical staff appointments and reappointments. In Petersburg, I'm Shelby Herbert. Petersburg's hospital board will hold its monthly meeting in the assembly chambers of the municipal building this evening at 5.30 p.m. KFSK will broadcast that meeting live and post the recording on our website, kfsk.org. There's more information on KFSK's community calendar. 
The Alaska Marine Highway System has too many old ships and too few people to operate them. In a virtual open house on Tuesday, ferry officials kicked off a 20-year plan for rebuilding and modernizing Alaska's Marine Highway. Marine Director Craig Tornga summarized ongoing issues facing the state's ferry system, including difficulty with crew recruitment and retention. All summer long, we've had a few no-sail days uh, across the fleet due to uh, crew shortage just because we didn't have enough personnel to meet the manning requirements of our, our certificate of inspection from the Coast Guard. Uh, so that, that continues uh, to, to plague us. Aging vessels are another problem for the ferry system, which currently operates five vessels over 45, year, over 45 years old. In August, AMHS released an interim plan outlining capital and operations improvements through 2026. The plan includes building three new vessels, including one to replace the 59-year-old Testamina and a hybrid or electric vessel to replace the Latuya. These reliability issues due to age, and uh, they're not going to improve for us until we build replacement vessels. Toringa says that the trajectory of the 60-year-old Matanuska is still in question. Since I've joined, we've held meetings with the Coast Guard, and and we don't have a determination yet to the extent of the upgrades to retain solace until we know the condition and the safety of the whole. Consultant Kristen Kissinger, who is working with AMHS on the long-range plan, emphasized that recommendations from communities will guide this stage of the planning process. Really having a database of just all the information about what kinds of things are present in a community, what a community might need, what are the gaps, what's missing, and what that means for how they use ferry service. She pointed attendees of an open house to an online survey, open through November 7th, and encouraged them to attend an Alaska Marine Highway Operations Board meeting, as well as to submit written comments. Work to develop the long-range plan will continue through mid-2024, and ferry users are encouraged to share input throughout the process. Bogoslav Volcano is showing signs of unrest that could lead to an eruption. The volcano is 61 miles northwest of Unalaska and has experienced over 90 earthquakes within the last three days. The island is part of the Alaska Marine National Wildlife Refuge and supports an important rookery and haul-out for endangered stellar sea lions and northern fur seals, as well as nesting grounds for over 50,000 mures, kittiwakes, and other seabirds, according to the National Park Service. Jessica Larson is a scientist with the Alaska Volcano Observatory. She says an eruption is not imminent, but they will be monitoring the volcano closely. It just means that we have some interesting seismic activity. We're going to keep our eye on it. We're going to keep analyzing that data, and we're going to look for increases in seismicity or any other type of observation we can make with satellites to see if there's any other unrest going on. One challenge with monitoring that is that Bogoslav is mostly underwater, so looking for signs like gas emissions can be difficult. The last time the volcano erupted was in 2017, which sent ash all over all the way to Unalaska. Larson says residents in surrounding communities like Nikolsky, Akutan and Unalaska should be prepared for possible ash if it were to erupt. You can report Asheville and track volcanic activity on the Alaska Volcano Observatory's website at avo.alaska.edu. 
U.S. Senator Lisa Murkowski announced in a press release Wednesday that the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services has awarded Alaska just over $19 million for Alaskans facing high energy costs. Over $11 million is coming from the low-income Home Energy Assistance Program funding. That money is intended to help low-income households lower their energy bills this winter. The other $8 million is aimed to help tribes in Alaska with high energy costs. LIHEAP is a congressionally funded program that provides financial assistance for heating costs and is administered by the state and tribal agencies across Alaska. The program includes two components, heating assistance grants and crisis assistance grants. Heating assistance grants help households meet heating costs Well, crisis assistance grants are meant to help resolve home heating crisis, like if someone is unable to pay their heat bill or if their heater breaks and they can't afford a new one. Applications are available at public assistance offices throughout the state and online at www.heatinghelp.alaska.gov. Households can help determine if they are eligible for assistance by using the LIHEAP eligibility tool on energyhelp.us. Climate change poses threats to subsistence practices across Alaska, particularly affecting Alaska Native communities who have relied on the land for food for millennia. Subsistence concerns were a major topic of discussion at the Alaska Federation of Natives Convention last Friday. Subsistence isn't just the food we eat. It's our way of life and who we are as a people. Denise May is the tribal administrator for the native village of Port Lyons on Kodiak Island. She spoke at a forum on the, at the convention where people from all over Alaska spoke about their concerns for salmon, caribou, whales, berries, and other subsistence food sources. Charles Wright is from Rampart on the Yukon River, which, along with the Kuskokwim River, is experiencing a historic salmon collapse. All of us in here are related and connected through salmon. It's dear to all of us. It's dear to all of our elders. It's mental, physical, and spiritual well-being of all of our people. The system that we try to make changes in, the management is broken. We need to stand up together and demand more. The Alaska Federation of Natives recently signed on to a federal lawsuit against the state of Alaska to protect subsistence rights. Currently, the state doesn't enforce a preference for rural subsistence users in fish and game management decisions during times of resource shortage. That contradicts the Alaska National Interests Lands Conservation Act, or ANILCA, that gives rural residents preference during restrictions. The Alaska Constitution mandates resource access for all Alaskans. Jonathan Samuelson is chair of the Kuskokwim Intertribal Fish Commission, another organization that signed on to the lawsuit. The time for recognized tribal stewardship is now. The time for sovereignty is now. The commissioner of the Alaska Department of Fish and Game told KNBA that the agency is following its constitutional duty to provide equal access to wildlife resources and maintaining authority over navigable waters. Both sides expect the fight to reach the U.S. Supreme Court. Bristol Bay's commercial fishery has a history of both competition and coordination between different interest groups. This summer, Christina McDermott sat down with Dan Barr, a retired Bristol Bay fisherman who spent his nearly 40-year career advocating for the fishery by connecting people to push for change. 
including helping pass federal legislation to protect returning salmon and other sea life, and providing an open radio network for fishers to discuss fishery issues. Here's this profile. Dan Barr is 81 and a half years old. He fished in Bristol Bay for just about half his life. It's been just such a great part of my life. I mean, one of the things is every year I came home, it was like to live out something new that got loose in me. Barr spent much of his career finding ways to connect different people with each other. For over two decades, he was president of the Bristol Bay Drift Netters Association, an organization formed in the 1980s that aimed to unify the fleet. There, he helped publish newsletters about issues around the fishery, like practices in the Pacific that affected its health. Throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s, vessels in international waters cast nets that were up to 40 kilometers long, collecting millions of salmon that were on their way to Bristol Bay. This is called high seas interception. The practice also results in high levels of bycatch. Nets trap everything from whales and sharks to seabirds. Barr worked with different interest groups and pushed for federal legislation to address the problem. In the early 90s, he formed a coalition that helped pass the High Seas Drift Net Act, which aimed to restrict large-scale drift net fishing in international waters. He says he worked with dozens of conservation and user groups like Greenpeace, as well as sports and other commercial fishers. Let's get a coalition of sports, environmental, and commercial. And we got 29 organizations to sign on, and we write a, wrote a letter to each U.S. senator. Barr attributes their success to collaboration. Their efforts helped restrict net size and made it illegal to import fish harvested with large drift nets. The act itself brought more visibility to both the bycatch and fish interception issue that affected both the ecological and economic health of the fishery. You know, we live in a world that's made some gains and constructive things are doing, and it's one of the things that came out of Bristol Bay. Barr also worked within Bristol Bay. He started an open radio channel for the Ugashic District where fishers could talk to each other about important issues during slow hours. So we got on one of the local VHF frequencies and said, spread the word. And so every night we go through and talk about what we knew about Bristol Bay, what we know about happening in the North Peninsula, what I know about the high seas, what about safety. He says some discussions on the radio lasted three hours. Through it all, Barr says his favorite part about fishing in Bristol Bay was spending time with his family and connecting with friends. The greatest part was fishing with my family. We had 10 members fish in Bristol Bay. Now he reflects on the people he met there. And the friends I made. I mean, the amazing people that are there and the people that have retired that have become longtime friends that are really quality people. So it's the people aspect first. Today, Barr is battling cancer in Seattle. His son fishes on his former boat. In Dillingham, I'm Christina McDermott. For KFSK, I'm Hannah Flora.